This is the Education Exchange with Paul Peterson. I have with me today Margaret Raymond, the director of Credo, a research organization at Stanford University that has been tracking the progress of students in charter schools throughout the United States for many years. Their reports have become the most consistent source of information, you might even say the definitive source of information on the progress charter schools are making nationwide. Just this past week, Credo has released a study on New York City, a city that has one of the most studied charter schools in the country, but a city that hasn't been uh, examined recently. And so everybody uh, is excited to hear of her new findings, and we plan to uh, talk with uh, Margaret Raymond about that. Uh, to her friends, uh, Margaret Raymond is known as Mackie, and as a longtime friend of hers, I'm going to use that uh, not a moniker uh, on this podcast. So Mackie, thank you for joining me on the Education Exchange. I'm happy to be here, Paul. Thanks for inviting me. Uh, so let's ask about that New York study. What, what are the central findings? Well, this is the third time that we've taken a look at New York City charter schools uh, as a group. And we were uh, interested to see whether our earlier results, which showed that New York City charter school students were learning consistently more in both reading and math than traditional public school students, would hold in this new study. And the new study actually is quite consistent. Uh, on, on average, the students in charter schools get about 36 extra days of learning in reading. And in math, it's closer to 70. So how does that compare with your earlier results? Is that uh, better or about the same as in the past? So the results in reading are uh, a little bit weaker, but not by much at all. And the results in math are consistent. And if you think about this, this is a sector that, despite all of the political strife about charter schools, continues to grow in New York City. Uh, schools that opened earlier are continuing to grow great at a time, if that's the model that they've chosen. Uh, new schools are coming online. And so in spite of the fact that this is a dynamic sector, they're able to manage growth and, uh, and performance at the same time. Is there any, I know that in some of your earlier studies, uh, you found that the charter authorizers tended to close the schools that weren't doing so well. Do you see any evidence that that's the case in New York as well? Yes. Uh, I should say that uh, part of the charter school bargain, as you know, flexibility for accountability um, carries the expectation that authorizers would take action with underperforming schools. New York City is actually one of the places that does follow through on that. The authorizers that oversee charter schools in New York State um, are not afraid to do the hard work of closing bad schools. And you can see that when you follow the sector over time. So that's part of the reason why these charter schools can continue to maintain an advantage over what's available in the traditional district sector. That's part of the reason, Paul. Uh, but it's also the case that uh, successful schools are replicating in New York City. And they are able to take what they know how to do and take it to a new school. 
and make sure that that second school or their third school or their nth school is also strong and positive. That's not a foregone conclusion in the charter world, and so it's a good thing to see in New York. Well, I know from your earlier studies that you see a difference between uh, charter schools that are what I'd call the moms and pops, those that are just uh, one-offs, that uh, there's, there's somebody has organized a school and they got a, a charter, uh, and the other type is the uh, charter management organization, the CMO, and uh, they have at least two schools, and some of them have quite a number of schools. And you do get different results depending on whether you're looking at these independent charters or these CMO charters. So for our listeners, just describe what you get there. Sure. So um, first off, you cannot become a CMO unless you have been a mom and pop. Uh, and so we continue to think that that's the, the sort of the seed corn of the charter marketplace. Um, the variation there is wider than what you see in the charter management organizations. Um, authorizers are becoming more, uh, more deliberate about allowing schools to replicate only under conditions where the schools are, are high quality. So you get a slightly more positive um, average performance of CMOs, and you get a tighter variation around that average. And that's in both uh, reading and math. That's correct. So how many states are you tracking charter schools now? We're following them in 30 states out of the 44 that allow them. So how do you manage to get the information that allows you to track charter school progress? I have a wonderful team who uh, are much more diplomatic than I am, and they are able to successfully negotiate with state education agencies to get something called a data sharing agreement, and that gives us access to uh, anonymized student-level data so that we can follow students in those states over time, whether they're in charter schools or whether they're in traditional schools, and that gives us the information we need to be able to determine which schools are doing better. Well, do you uh, have an many experiences where they have given you access to the data and then as time goes by for some reason or another they pull back and you no longer can get it or once you get it you're the door has been open to you ever since it's a continuing negotiation uh, I, I have to say that no no data sharer likes to get news that their schools aren't doing well and so at any point in which we release a study in which a state is not highlighted in a positive way, there's always a little bit of, of a recoil that we experience with that state. The, the good news is that most states have the conviction, most state agencies have the conviction that they really would like to know what's going on. They think that that kind of transparency is good not only for uh, the public to know about it, but also to help them inform the development of their own policies over time. So. You know, once those hurt feelings go away, we're generally back in good graces. But it takes a while. So what exactly do you do to decide whether or not the charter schools are more effective? How do you, how do you make this calculation that the charter schools are, are having this average effect of 36 or mm -hmm. 64 days more a year? What's the... Well, it's, an, it's an interesting question if you are a pointy-headed statistical kind of guy. Um, we can't compare school to school because charter schools do not educate a completely representative sample of the traditional public school sector. Uh, we find that they actually usually educate 
more minority, more poverty students than would be the case in the traditional district schools. So a school-to-school -school comparison doesn't work. And so in order to create really the apples-to-apples -apples comparison, we have a very large statistical algorithm that we run that takes every single charter school student and finds kids who look exactly like them but in the traditional district schools that they otherwise would have attended if they hadn't gone to a charter school. And we call that methodology the virtual twin. And what we do then is we basically pair up uh, the twin that we've created out of those identical twins in the traditional sector and the charter school student. And then you've got essentially a twin study or a two-by-two two study. And we're always looking at, does Johnny in the charter school do better or worse than Johnny twin in the district schools? So when you do that, nationwide for all of the 30 states, it's not quite nationwide, but it's, a very, it's, it's the best sample we have. There's nobody has got a more complete sample than the one that you have been able to put together. What do you conclude about how the charter sector does as a whole? Is it actually doing, as in New York City, uh, better than the traditional public schools, or is it not? So on average, the charter sector is doing slightly better. But what's important to realize is that the average is actually made up of about 7,000 schools. We capture about 6,000 of those in our study, uh, in our studies. And what we find is that it's particularly salient to have charter schools in communities where the district schools have been underperforming for a long time where uh, students who are of color or who have low socioeconomic status or who have challenges of one form or another have not been well served, that's a place where charter schools really are targeted, they're on a mission, they're really focused on serving that population and serving them well, and it's there that you see the largest differences, as we see in New York City, as we see in Boston, uh, as we see in, in other communities. In other parts of the country, in suburban areas or in smaller cities, um, the results are not as positive. And I think it's, it's partly that there is a draw to large urban areas, that these are specifically poverty pockets that people really want to be involved with. And it's also that these are attractive places to live, and so it's easy to get good talent in those communities. But it also might be that you're... Uh district-run school in suburban areas and rural areas is not in trouble in the same way that they are in some of our big cities. And so a charter school is going to have to really be good to be better than what's available from your district Well, we, we certainly see that, Paul, in the suburban uh, charter schools. In the suburban schools, we see that the overall achievement of the school is is about the same, a little bit less than the district schools that they compete with. Uh, but what we find is that the achievement is so high that parents are willing to do a little bit of a trade-off on not getting the absolute last uh, percentile of achievement because those schools offer something else. And those are sort of the schools of choice that are most about non-academic dimensions of choice. So the schools might be smaller, they might have a specific theme, they may be a different kind of interaction with the adults and the students. Those are the kinds of things that parents are looking for in those communities. Well, there's an increasing uh, amount of discussion of the whole area of 
uh, grit or social economic learning or social cultural learning. Uh, Socio emotional learning. Is socially, uh, the words <clears throat> keep changing on me, and I have trouble keeping up with it. The non cognitive, which is uh, is that the worst of the of these <laughs> concepts. Uh, but it really tries to capture the fact that there's more that you learn in school than just reading and writing and arithmetic. You're also learning how to get along with other people. You're learning habits that are going to be important for the rest of your life. And so you're looking at test scores in your studies. Some people say that can be highly misleading because these other things are actually more important. How do you respond to that uh, concern? Well, I've heard that concern voiced myself, and I think it is a bit of a red herring. You'd have to believe that performance on test scores is completely orthogonal to these other things in order to set up that argument and have it be true. And that's just not the case. Where we have non-cognitive or socio-emotional dimensions of data that we can see, they're highly correlated with good performance in schools. The schools that actually are able to achieve strong academic results are also the ones that are building positive cultures in their schools. They need that in order to get kids oriented towards the academics. They're teaching cooperation. They're encouraging the kind of persistence, grit, growth mindset, you name it, uh, promise uh, of potential and so forth, focusing on going to college when you're in fourth grade. Those are the kinds of things that are necessary in order to convince kids that the academics are actually something they want to dive into. And so I think that they're all correlated. All right, now finally, let me ask you whether, what the trajectory is in the charter sector. Is it going up, down, or sideways? What, what's your sense of the, are, are schools getting better with the passage of time, or are they, you know, it is a brand new sector. It's not like it's been around for 150 years. And you might expect it to be making progress as it, as it, as it ages. So what, what, so what the, do you have to say on that front? The gains in the sector come from two things and not the two things you would think about. Um, we see in our data that schools over time don't actually get much better from whatever level of quality they exhibit when they first open. So they open up and within a few years they've hit some, some level of quality and they tend to stay there for a long time. Um, there are a few examples where some huge shock changes the trajectory of that school, but that's the, that's the exception, that's not the rule. Where quality improvement comes from are at the authorizer level being much more um, reflective and discriminating about the schools that you allow to open in the first place and being diligent about closing schools that are underperforming. So we can see in both of those angles that the schools that are coming into the sector are coming in at a higher level than schools that were coming in 10 years ago. And we can see that authorizers not all of them, but many, are now doing the hard and uh, politically unpalatable work of intervening in failing schools. Have we reached uh, the peak of the charter school movement? Is it, uh, we've seen a steady growth for the last decade or more, uh, but is it peaking out? Is this the high watermark? Uh, are we gonna, are we gonna be remaining at this level? How, how do you see the future? Well, 
Speaking on behalf of the hundreds of thousands of parents with children on waiting lists, I think the answer is there's a hope that it's not peaked, that there are still huge pent-up demand around the country for charter schools to be available for students who have not yet had the chance. Um, on the other hand, I think that there are political and regulatory constraints that are coming on uh, that are making it more difficult for schools to actually open and operate. Um, I'm hoping over time that uh, more credence is given to the demand for the schools than there is to the critics of those schools. Well, thank you very much, Mackie. I've been speaking with Margaret Raymond, who is the director of Credo, an organization that has been doing research on charter school performance for many years. Uh, thank you for joining me on the Education Exchange, Mackie. Happy to be here. Thank you. This is Paul Peterson. This is the Education Exchange. Join me every Monday noon when the next podcast is released.